people who manage people are usually cautious. They follow rules and avoid risks. But could this approach be holding businesses back? I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD Podcast. We could have started with a burst of Freddie Mercury singing, I want to break free. Yet do we want to break free, really? In this still very uncertain working world, people professionals can too easily take comfort in daily structure. Yes, always busy, holding things together, writing and implementing policies and policing it all. But if there's no reward without risk, then what is your organisation missing out on here? To help us find out, CIPD board member Yetunde Hoffman, who built a stellar HR career at FTSE 100 companies. She's MD of Synchrony Development Consulting and famously gave a TEDx talk, Why Not Have Love in Business? Hello. Hi, Nigel. Thank you. Caroline Parsons leads over 170 people as HR director for WSP in Dubai in the Middle East. WSP provides management and services for clients in the built and natural environment. Among other things, she's going to tell us how she stopped writing policies. Hello. Hi, Nigel. But maybe it's not just the policies, but our own personal risk appetites, which might be getting in the way. So also with us, chartered psychologist Jeff Tricky, the MD of PCL, an expert assessor and consultancy in all things employee engagement, selection and career development. Hello. Hello. Hello, Nigel. So Caroline Parsons, uh, before you kind of drop your no policies bomb on us, can you just delve back a little bit into your your professional training, your initial working life as a people manager in Manchester, I think it was. In what way would you say that compliance, the rule book and policies not only maybe filled your time, but maybe even influenced how you work with people and treated them? So I, I'm certain, well, I'm trained in HR. So, you know, the moment I went into HR as a profession, my degree is in HR I studied advanced law with the CIPD as an early, you know as soon as I graduated, and my early career was spent working in unionised environments. So I worked um, my internships and my early graduate career were with Chorus, formerly British Steel, very unionised, an environment where you did have to have policies and rules because people were watching for that. It was also at a time, and you'll guess my age when I say this, but it was when data protection became a big topic. And I was a data protection compliance officer very, very early in my career. It was also around the time when Sarbanes-Oxley became uh, relevant. So I was kind of, it was all about audit rules, trade union agreements, following what we said we would do, being held accountable for what we said we'd do. So it was quite an interesting beginning of my career, which certainly put that into my into my DNA. And being in the UK as well, just the, the legislative framework, the policy culture we were in. So I'd say um, from day one, I was sort of immersed into, you know, compliance um, from lots of different angles. It's almost like you're a policewoman almost. I was, and people used to say that, and I didn't ever like that. But that was kind of, even from the very beginning, that was what we were, you know, positioned as. Um, and especially in those environments where you have, so after um, Chorus, I went to Balfour Beatty, again, highly unionised environment, big, you know, textbook trade agreements that we had to follow. You know, we, we weren't given wriggle room, I guess, to, to go outside of what we'd agreed with the unions. And Yusunde Hoffman, this must be all pretty familiar to you. I mean, in your time, you must have helped create complex handbooks for companies and everything. And uh, I mean, after all, part of the job is keeping your firm out of the headlines to make sure uh, people don't get the company into trouble. 
Nigel, you're absolutely right. And, and if you're working in the, the controversial industry, which I did in my last executive career, I was head of people integration for a global merger of imperial brands with Altadis, which was basically Sater of France and Tabacalera of, of Spain. This was a global company, about 17,000 acquiring 45,000 people. And so you, how do you integrate? We had to have a rule book. We were dealing with works councils across all of Europe, just like Caroline said. You had to stay in line and you have also local country employment law to adhere to and making sure that people are selected well. And so you just had to walk within the box that was given to you. Very little wriggle room. And uh, Jeff Tricky, on top of this, of course, we all have our own personal kind of risk appetites, don't we? We do, indeed. Yeah. Well, since, uh, I suppose, the last 10 years, we've been researching that specifically, and that was brought to the forefront by... Um, the regulatory response, I suppose, to the financial crisis. And part of that was that financial intermediaries must always take into account the risk disposition of their clients. And of course, there really wasn't a way of doing that that was really reflected psychology. There were a lot of simplistic questionnaires that were um, reeled out, but there wasn't anything well researched. And so I guess the last 10 years, we've been working on that and developing a methodology to help identify what we describe as risk type. But it's it's not actually a typology, it's continuous, but you need to divide it up just in order to attach meaning to the various points along that continuum, if you see what I mean. So we developed something called the risk type compass, and that's proved to be really quite fascinating. Are you actually able to say that when people are disposed towards rules and they personally say that they're a good idea, that they might be, I don't know, overzealous or somehow they will have a kind of uh, safety first approach, which might uh, not necessarily be the best way to do their job? Yeah, I think that's the case. I think the, the point is some people need rules. They, they desperately want the rules. and They'll ask for the rules if you haven't got any. They like to, things to be specific and coherent and clear. And also they need to feel they have permission to do what they want to do. So that's, I suppose, in a way, your ideal corporate sort of faceless person. I mean, the reality is that there are a lot of people who don't ask permission. And that's, I mean, that's your entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs don't go around saying, can I do this? Can I do that? They do it and wait for someone to say, um, well, what are you doing? I mean, you're violating this rule. You say, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll fix that. And so, you know, it's this, this all sort of occurred to me as a young person living around the green lanes in North London, where this waves of immigrants would come up, open up a shop or a club or a bar or a bakery and get on with it. And they'd wait for the local authority to come around and say, excuse me, you've got a license for this? You know, it's, it, and that sort of exemplified to me um, the difference between those who want to have permission and those who don't. When it comes to the world of HR and organisation, it's, it's similar to boards. There will be an element of compliance that you've got to adhere to because governments across the nations globally will have employment law and it will be responsible and indeed it's leadership that the HR leader, the HR professional adheres to that. But then it depends on personalities, listening to Jeff, because you may have the HR director who just will stick completely or the HR manager, business partner will stick completely to the plan 
plan to the policy. And then you may have the person who is more open to being entrepreneurial, wanting to do different things and says, okay, let's meet the minimum requirements here and then let's get creative. So it depends on the individual. I think, you know, two points. I think one, I work in an engineering firm. So those people that want clarity exist, but it's also a professional services firm. So there's the entrepreneurial spirit. So trying to balance that has been what has been my um, freedom of the last years because people didn't all want the rules that Jeff described, but because we were entrepreneurial at the same time, what engineers do in the end, they want some clarity. So that's driven a little bit of how we've responded. And just to also pick up on Yutunde's points around, you know, HR director's responsibility to be compliant. But the thing that I've noticed in the years since I kind of stopped writing policies, more or less, was I found that the better HR directors or HR leaders were way more creative, way more creative, more curious. They were prepared to work within boundaries, but, you know, push them a little bit and find solutions that were more suitable to what people needed. So, Caroline, you decided that you were going to stop writing policies. You were going to, wherever possible, throw away the rule book. So just tell us first, what kind of reaction did you get from senior managers, from colleagues? And then how did it work out? So I think what led us to that point is an important point. So we were doing a, um, a merger and it was two companies equal size, both very reputable. And you were sitting looking at two sets of policies, looking at how do I integrate? And, and it wasn't a choice of one or the other. It was, well, maybe there's a third alternative. And in that moment, I set out with the two teams, two HR teams and said, OK, you go away and write that policy again. You go away and find the best of that one. And you find and what they come back with was maybe shorter versions of the same thing. And then I just really started to think about the fact why were we doing this? You know, this was a moment that you, you don't often get in organizations where you can rewrite the whole thing. And so we, we looked at it and said, well, what does high trust mean? We were an organization trying to be and um, manage to be successful in the Great Place to Work Index. And that was all about trust. And we said, well, does this policy sound like it trusts somebody? So when we started to ask that question, we came up with different outcomes. We stopped thinking about why do we need a policy at all? We need to design it in the process which is what Utenda was saying, is if you design it into the process, then you don't need so much of an employee handbook or a set of rules somewhere that people can go and look at when you want to attack them with it or defend yourself with it. And we're talking about rules for what here? For process, you know, how do you manage sick leave? How do you manage disability claims, harassment? How do you manage any part of the life cycle, onboarding, offboarding, anything that is process driven and requires guidance? We found you could often design it into the process. So it isn't that guidance doesn't exist, it's that the, the handbooks and the, the pages and pages of this is the policy and this is the eligibility and this is the criteria and this is how it's enforced, you don't need those. And your question was, how have managers responded? Nobody came and asked me for a policy and it's been about seven years now. <laughs> That's extraordinary. This is the kind of business world that we're moving into now, which is much looser. And I'm just wondering whether there are any tactics, any assessments, any things that you can do that make it slightly easier to sort of ease both managers and the people who work for them into this kind of environment. I think there's a kind of natural phenomenon here, isn't it? I mean, we're taking on Caroline's point about really a, a moment of disruption and chaos. Times of disruption are perfect for introducing new policies, aren't they? And I know, I mean, just as a result of COVID, there are many organisations will never go back to what they were before. When we've been talking about a new normal, I think there will be a new normal. People will take advantage of the disruption to 
to take the opportunity to take over a piece of territory or to do things differently or to get another point of view across. I think the other point I'll make is that it is about diversity. I don't think it's about having... Um, in fact, the last thing you want is people who all agree with each other. I think that, so you can create your own sort of disruption in a way, but within the board. You know, if you've got a board which is all of one mind and looks at everything the same way, then you've, you've got instant groupthink. I mean, that's not a good thing. You, so what a lot of the work we have been doing with boards is to, well, first of all, to build self-awareness and make people recognize that that person has a different point of view. And that's a point of contention at the moment. But if you can recognize it, and another word that Caroline's used a lot is trust. If you work in a, in a climate of mutual trust, then you respect that other point of view, and that becomes a strength. So, yeah, I, I think well, the, my general point was that, that having variety of viewpoint is what you want. You don't want either entrepreneurs or you want rule players. You want both. You want some, and you want to climb it. I mean, it's the, the culture, the risk culture needs to be not something highly specific, but something that is broader and looser so that people feel free. They feel that they have the permission to make their contribution. I mean, what the worst thing you want is where you've got a lot of people who think the same. And the person who really has the answer is the person who's outnumbered. But they have the answer and they're reticent about disturbing this consensus. So I think there's a, a way of working together. And, and I mentioned disruption. I mean, we know that disruptive points commercially or whatever in our world at times when things change. It's when we, we have a completely new view of shopping because Amazon comes along or, or whatever. High tech has obviously been the, the main players just recently. But that's, that's just history. I think whenever there's disruption, there's opportunity. But I, I would stress this point about divergence and complementary views and, and and having that sort of solid basis for decision making is always better than one autocratic view. We're talking essentially here about learning to take more calculated risks with people. So I'd like uh, Yotunde Hoffman maybe to go through some of the things, because like Caroline, you were in very much kind of command and control situations in the early part of your career. So can you just sort of talk us through some of the areas in your practice where taking the brakes off and thinking carefully and then doing something which might appear a bit risky can bring rewards? Well, I think that one of the things that you've got to be aware of, any HR person living out there, is that you've got to really understand the people that you are working with, who you support, and you've got to have an attitude of people first. What are we trying to achieve and how will it impact the people I'm working with. So I come from a school of saying we've got to have freedom with discipline because the people do want psychological safety in the way they operate. And as an HR leader, all HR leaders out there have responsibility because it's a leadership profession. It's a leadership function. And so the first thing starts with trusting yourself and believing yourself in the leader, believing in yourself as the leader you are called to be, to serve, to lead, to step forward. And this can show up in all kinds of instances, whether you're around the table at a talent review meeting, you've got all your boxes, the nine box matrix, etc. And there's somebody who absolutely is a shining star. 
And that person is not being recognized as such because maybe the rule of the day in the organization is all about strategy. And this person is very operational, high performing operational. Then it's up to the HR leader or the HR professional in the room to stand up and be counted. And I've seen situations where that risk has been taken because the HR leader has established some trust, has been willing to say, I personally back this person. And that individual has soared. And therefore, you cannot go by the rule books all the time. I've seen this time and time again. I've seen it in my role in Unilever. I've seen it in my role in Northern Foods. I've seen it in my role in Domec. So it's, it's so important, the HR leader, his or herself, having a belief in what their role is about to be, having a high level of self-awareness or making sure they, they, they develop that. And then because they know what they're there to do, not climb up the greasy poles of power. They're there to serve, to make a difference. If that's backing them, then they're more willing to stick their neck out. Round the talent review table, round the promotion boards if you're in a partnership, round the recruitment and selection boards if you're in graduate recruitment, whatever it might be. Yutunde is talking uh, about uh, a kind of a life's experience which uh, she's inspiring people to put into their practice. But what about people who are maybe just not quite so far up the career ladder? This kind of approach to work is maybe a little bit more difficult. So just talk a bit about how you sort of inspire your people to kind of, uh, if not break the rules, then uh, sort of certainly work out how they maybe don't need them. I definitely can say I've experienced that. So where you give, even you say like, go away and rewrite it. Think about trust. Does it feel like it trusts you? And they will, you know, a team would still come back with a version that maybe has less words, but it's still got the control in there. You know, they may take out some of it, but they still hold on to a bit. And it takes a lot of time. It takes coaching, but it does take leadership to to that point. It does take to have a leader who's prepared to resist the organization's urge for policy, for example, or resist the organization's urge to be black and white on matters that are absolutely grey. So I think leadership is key. And making it a safe space to do that. It's As HR people, as I said, I try to grow this idea of creativity and freedom. So I often say, well, what do you think? I'm very much of the, of the school where it says, okay, well, I think this is an idea we could go with, but what do you think? How do you think this is going to work with the people that you work with and the people that you serve? You know, is this going to go well? Is it going to cause issues for us? So I spend, you know, over the years, spend time walking it through to reach a solution. But often I've found giving people freedom to go away and set the parameter of, I want high trust, low process. What does that look like? And then they come back and then I kind of say, well, do we really need that bit and that bit? Does that say it's low trust? So just coaching, but it does need leadership. I, ha- I have to say, you have to have an organizational climate where this is is permitted or encouraged even, that curiosity and that creativity. Uh, Jeff Tricky, what about situations, we've already had hints of this, where people actually need more structure, that they would feel slightly discomforted by not knowing what the sort of structure is? Well, I just, I think that accounts for quite a lot of people and particularly in certain professions where that that is kind of the situation. I think different professions attract different people. So you don't have an of the same cross-section of people, for example, working as air traffic controllers as you do having working in advertising or marketing or something. I mean, they, they get attracted differently and that kind of establishes a culture, I suppose. So, Jeff, what kind of people are HR managers then? 
Well, we, I, I'm interested in this. I, we had a look at our data and we have a lot of data and the data, all our data is anonymized, but we, we do retain what their background is. And I was surprised. We only have a, a huge number of people who identify as HR, but they, they seem surprisingly to me varied. I mean, we, we sort of break up the spectrum and it is a 360 degree spectrum. And we break that up in, into a number of different parts, eight different risk types, basically. And if you talk about air traffic controllers, for example, about 99% of them come from the same quadrant within the compass. HR are fairly evenly distributed around. So, and I take that to, I mean, it's reflecting people in all sorts of different positions in HR. So you can't draw much on it. Just stop you there a second. Uh, Yatunde, are you surprised at that? Because I would have thought that a lot of people who are attracted to HR would be relatively risk averse. They're not probably entrepreneurs. They're not bold people who want to do something different every day and then not clean up the mess. Nigel, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that, and when I talk about HR being a leadership profession, I mean at all levels. It's a profession, it's a leadership one, so it's not just about the career ladder. But coming back to what you said about the people who are attracted to HR, I believe without a shadow of a doubt, if more HR professionals believed in their own capabilities and what they were there to do. Many more of them will be transitioning into CEO roles because I believe the HR profession in organization deals with from the ridiculous to the sublime. It deals with detail, process, strategy, creativity, the finance, all sorts of every aspect of the organization. And so I often believe that HR directors, HR professionals are really closet CEOs. And if they had the somebody backing them and saying, I believe in you, indeed, if they backed themselves more, we'd see more HR people in, in, going for general management roles, and they'd be fantastic. Caroline, this is a pretty revolutionary idea, isn't it? Yeah, not really. I was on the career track for a CEO. Um, I, it's um, it's totally legit. I think who does a CEO call when he has a really big problem? It's usually the HR person first. Certainly that's my experience. In which case then, why is the image of the profession behind the curve? Because it's almost like, we. I mean, you're all talking about a, a very different kind of modern HR. And yet we're talking about the sort of stereotype of uh, people um, just policing rules. I am sometimes disappointed with HR practitioners that I meet who perhaps haven't had the luxury that I've had or had you know, opportunity to, you know, look at it differently because I came from that same route and I was going on that same route and I now find myself, you know, throwing away work that I would have years ago found, you know, sacred that I needed and I don't need it anymore. So I think um, it's often the opportunities and experience we've had in the Middle East, particularly, um, we don't see as many of the kind of creative, visionary HR leaders as I described. They are here, but there's not as many of them. So they're definitely here. So I think there is a, a general shift in the profession, but it's taking some time. And I have to say, going back to Jeff's point about what kind of people come into HR, I do think they are a little risk averse. I'm a little risk averse. You know, I've had to come out of my comfort zone to be the person I am today, to be the leader I am today. But for sure, you know, in general life, I would be nervous of risk. So I am exactly the stereotype of risk averse, you know, like to have some rules, but like to know what I can do with inside them. So, Jeff, can you work on yourself to do better in that area, to understand better what your kind of natural tendencies are and to play against type maybe sometimes? 
I think that's just about what growing up is, isn't it, really? You start off, you know, start off as a kid who has tantrums at the counter in the supermarket because you want a sweetie. And you, that you, you sort of nail that all down as you progress through the organization because you know you mustn't have tantrums as a newly appointed graduate. But the time you become the CEO, you don't care anymore. I mean, you get some very, you know, get people who are, incredibly self-indulgent at the top of organizations and it's it's a, a, a sort of a coaching theme i guess that we deploy a lot uh, which what we refer to as the dark side of personality personality is fundamentally a part of your nature really that's part of it but then you've got a cognitive side of you which is trying to wrestle with that and present to the world whatever is going to work. So there's always this sort of struggle between what is your nature and what you desire to be. And the problem is, I mean, CEOs these days on a global sort of basis don't last long. I mean, the, the, the likelihood is they'll change after three years, four years in big organizations. And that's largely because they become, they lose the, the faith of the people they work with. They lose the trust of the people they work with because they become, I suppose, well, it depends. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a dark side of personality. It's a big subject. So it's not, I can't just boil it down to arrogance, but hubris is something that, that comes to the fore and is often discussed. That's one aspect of, 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 of this, where it, what would have been restrained in the younger, newly appointed person who does everything they're told to begin with, as they rise through the organization there, they allow themselves to be what, you know, who's going to tell me what to do? Look where I sit in the world. I'm right up here, you know. That, I mean, that, that is a massive oversimplification, but don't take that too literally. But it's a, it's a good example because we all know about confidence and overconfidence and hubris. And it's a, it's one of the tracks, but there are about 12 tracks like this that you can identify within the sort of dark side of personality, which they are derailers basically in the end. What is your basic strength turns out to be what derails you in the end if you let it get away from you. It sounds a bit like politics and all careers end in failure. I'm sure that, uh, well, stay in HR, that's the answer, isn't it? Yutende Hoffman, as we sort of try and start to draw this to a close, can you just sort of give us give us a tip or two, just give us a couple of ideas for making sure that you're being more creative in this work and uh, not just avoiding everything because there might be a risk involved? Well, there's an expression that I would use, physician, heal thyself. And to heal yourself, you've really got to understand who you are. So the very first tip is that an HR leader, and we all are leaders, it doesn't matter what level of organize, what level you are in the HR function in your organization. Invest time in understanding yourself and invest time in accepting all of who you are. This is what I call love in organization. You've really got to operate from a place of love. And then from there, you've got to understand your boundaries. And if you want to take some risk, go to colleagues that, that can help you. Surround yourself with, with people who can support you, people from the front line who buy into what you're trying to do. Test your ideas in a few things and situations. I talk about bringing love in organizations and people have said, well, how do you do that? Well, like with any change program, to take some risk. Try, test, test with one or two trusted people. And then from there, you can create the butterfly effect across the organization. And I tell you something, CEOs are very risk averse. If we had more leaders, traditional leaders, as in CEOs, top level people in organizations taking more risk, we wouldn't have the diversity problem we have now. 
in business across the world because people like to be safe. They want people that look like them, sound like them, feel like them at the top. So if we had more creative thinking in the gatekeeping positions, we'd have more color, more thought leadership, more neurodiversity, more gender, all of that. The richness will be in organizations. So I think that that's the place to start. Start with understanding yourself. Easy tip. Be clear on that. Do some personality tests. Create a journal, get it, seek feedback. And then if you have a gem of an idea, find one or two stakeholders in your organization who are willing to support you and back you. Wow. Well, follow that, Caroline. In terms of your own practice, anything you would add? Wonderful contribution. I, I just love everything you just said there. It's even inspiring uh, for me as well. I think one thing that occurred to me then as well was just this abundance idea that there is enough ideas, there is enough time, there is enough creativity to go around. So, you know, to the point of trying things out is a great idea. So having an idea and saying, well, how do I, you know, what's this organization about? How do I really speak to the guiding principles or the mission or values of an organization when I'm drafting the HR way of working or when I'm designing the employee experience? I think if you if you profess to be an organization that is, you know, a high on trust or, you know, values empowerment, then you have to go back and say, well, did I design that in? Because often we haven't done that. We've created a you know, whole set of vision and values and then the design of the organization does not complement that at all. So my advice to any HR practitioner is just go away and, and you know, read back over the things that you're doing and the policies you've written and some of your core processes and just ask yourself, is that doing what we're designing here? Because sometimes we've, we haven't looked at it in that mirror for, for a while. We haven't thought deeply enough about what we've designed. So that's my tip and, and some of my better ideas and some of our teams and organizational progression has been coming from really unraveling the detail of why we do what we do. And a final thought from you, Jeff? Well, I, um, social defense theory is a theory that suggests we survive as a team, as a species. And that's why we're so diverse in terms of our temperaments. We need, we need the mix. No one person has it all. If they do, they only have any of it in a very diluted form. So Mervyn King draws attention, you know, the former governor of the Bank of England has a concept of radical uncertainty. And as we get more technological, we will move into greater and greater radical uncertainty. That's to say we're driving with a rear view mirror, which has less and less in it because it's all more recent. You know, in the past, if you think traditionally, you looked in a rearview mirror that might have gone back a 100 years. Now, if you look in your rearview mirror, you're looking back probably months or a couple of years to the last revolutionary, disruptive technical innovation. So we do need to find a way to get back almost to the team work. In, and that's the diversity of approaches that enabled us to survive and to be successful as a species. That's my view. And I, and I think that it's going to become more the case as the world becomes less and less familiar to us. And it's happening extremely rapidly now already. We're changing the world at a huge rate. You don't have a rear view mirror anymore. That's a guidance and a, and a help to where you're going in the future. So that's radical uncertainty. Better to make decisions from a diverse background of people, a diverse set of different dispositions for particularly in terms of risk, because risk dispositions affect all your decisions. Every decision is a risk decision, if you think about it. And your risk disposition is at the core of your personality. So that diversity needs to be there. That's my view. I just wanted to give, uh, on top of what Jeff said, a a practical uh, tip to any HR practitioner out there. 
when you're in a meeting, two things, any meeting at all, whether it's about talent reviews, whether it's recruitment, uh, forming a policy, et cetera, et cetera. Two questions you could ask yourself. The first question should be, who should be in this room that we haven't considered? That's creative because you might think of somebody, maybe somebody on the shop floor, it might be somebody on an engineering line, whatever it might be, because diversity is really also thinking, who is this going to impact? That's the first question. Question two, you could then ask is, who is going to be impacted by this decision that we're making? Positively, negatively. And see whether that changes your decision or the process or whatever. I think those two questions... Any HR person in the room, when they ask that question of their stakeholders, whether they're your peers, more junior, more senior, I think it would lead to some very constructive discussion and could bring some creativity and innovation out as well. Great. Well, some excellently constructive discussion from you all. Let me just thank our guests, uh, Caroline Parsons in Dubai, Yutunde Hoffman and Jeff Tricky. Great stuff, one and all. Talking as we were just now about this new working world that COVID has rained on us, we had a great and very positive reaction to our last podcast. Seven Trent's Neil Morrison, Compass Group's Deborah Taylor and the CIPD's Brad Taylor walked us through how 2021 is set to change so much else in HR. So do have a listen if you haven't caught that first show of the year and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future editions. But until the next time, from me, Nigel Cassidy and all at the CIPD, it's goodbye and keep taking care.